Welcome to One Giant Podcast. Along with Andy Makowitz, I'm Adam Armbrecht, once again coming to you with all things New York football giants. And as we go ahead and take a look back at the matchup against the Detroit Lions, Andy, before we dive into it, where's your state of mind as we, we feel like we tend to do now in this this time of year for the Giants? How are you feeling coming off what ultimately ends up being a disappointing loss for the Giants? The good news is I had plenty of libations in the refrigerator to watch what was going on on Sunday, and you were with me on the couch, Adam. So we were able to uh, wallow in misery together, watching it, shaking our heads at all the fumbled opportunities that the Giants had to take control of this game and win it. Yeah, I guess I did kind of bury the lead there a little bit. It's been a, it's been a long, it feels like it's been a long 24 hour, 24 plus hours since the game actually happened, but we're going to go ahead and dive right into this one. One giant fumble. So this is a theme that I think we we were discussing before we started recording. It's going to be oh so applicable and in the, the one giant fumble theme here, what, what were your takeaways? Giants fall to the Detroit Lions 31-26. This, again, has a very similar feeling to the week before where, despite what the final scoreline was, wasn't necessarily a game where you felt like at any point the Giants were really in it. And it, it goes back to miscues, maybe some poor decision-making, but what's your overall take before we really get into some of the details? I'd like to disagree with you for a second, Adam. Oh, okay. There was a moment in time where I thought the Giants were in it. And that was when Matt Stafford inexcusably (laughs) throws a horrific pass down to the the New York Giants five. It was a gift sent from the heavens to Janoris Jenkins. Uh, I am shocked that Stafford threw it. But the second he threw it, I gave a fist pump and said, all right, we're in business. If Stafford's a little nervy today and, and we're getting some pressure and he's going to make mistakes, we've got a chance. This has been the first time in a while. This season has been, I, I just think, difficult for me to digest from a lot of standpoints. And all the optimism of having Daniel Jones starting, and this obviously was a good game for him, but even early on there, that interception, I think, you know, you were fist pumping and excitement and being like, here we go. We can, we can be a part of this thing if Stafford's going to struggle. I think I still had it. I had like a wounded dog kind of mentality the entire game that we, when we were watching this. Well, yeah, you did. You were very reserved in your excitement. And, you know, going into the game, we both predicted uh, a Giants loss in this one. We both predicted, you know, a, a relatively higher scoring game. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I kind of uh, was taking the fandom out and fist pumping and having a good time. You had reserved optimism, I would say, up until the point – Three plays after the interception where the fumble lateral happens. Well, and I, and that's kind of, I mean, that's obviously the perfect spot to kind of dive into here, but that's sort of the issue that I've been having with getting overly excited when, when I watch these games because it really does feel like no matter what positives, and we've seen, that felt eerily similar to the Tom Brady interception that was just kind of lobbed out there for Jenkins to gobble up. And it feels great, but this team has just been notorious for then ripping your heart out on what feels like a bonehead play or just a fluke play or, you know, a sloppy play. You and I both, I called it out immediately. I was like, that's a fumble because you could tell that it was two, three yards behind the line of scrimmage. And, you know, Barkley said this after the game. He took full responsibility for it. He was very lackadaisical on it. It's something that he says the coaches preach about 
make sure you just go and cover up that ball just to be sure he doesn't. Former Giant, uh, you know, Devin Kennard gobbles it up, takes it for a touchdown, and, and that was maybe just, again, you know, affirmation that this was going to be a rough day. And that's where the wind kind of fell out of my sails. <laughs> you know, I, I really thought we needed to kind of move the ball down the field and, and get up early. We've been falling behind so early and so often these last few games. And shocker, down 14 nothing in the first quarter to the Arizona Cardinals. You know, a couple plays later, we punt. And shortly thereafter, Matt Stafford throws a peach um, to Marvin Hall for almost 50 yards, a 49-yard touchdown pass. And much like the Arizona Cardinal game, just like that, the Giants are down 14 nothing, And it felt eerily similar, didn't it? Exactly. It was just this weird, this weird thing of, you know, coming out a little bit slow, a little bit sloppy, making mistakes. You know, a, a positive to take away, and I want to make sure that we do blend this in because I think well, – I said it last week, this is going to be a part – of these podcasts and of these game recaps as we move down the season is trying to find silver linings. I thought that Barkley did look as close to 100% as he has. He looked healthy. They were utilizing him well in the run game. You accurately, I think, identified it in the pregame about how you thought they would utilize him, getting him out in space and getting him involved in the passing game. So, you know, these positive things are occurring, and they do manage to fight their way back into this thing, right? Early on, they were dumping the ball to Saquon. That was exactly what we had talked about. And, uh, yep, give myself a pat on the back. I thought they were going to get it to Saquon early and often through the passing game this time. Two key things. One, Darius Slayton. Uh, you know, he caught two balls all day, and both were for beautiful touchdowns in the second quarter. I think – He's really emerging as a guy that, uh, you know, we talk about silver linings that uh, with no Sterling Shepard, having him in the lineup, being able to stretch the field and make those athletic plays with the defenders draped all over him was a huge plus for us. Yeah, it certainly was. And I think, you know, what's interesting is come, working our way through the season and kind of identifying where the Giants may look to improve their roster in the offseason and going into the draft. You know, wide receiver is something that you, people have talked about, but it, I, I am starting to get more and more confident that Darius Slayton can be a substantial weapon for them going forward. And in a game like this, even ultimately in a loss, what you do take away is that him and Jones seem to have a pretty good rapport. We can get into some later game stuff where there might have been some issues or some rookie hiccups, as we'll call them. But he's certainly shown a couple of things that the Giants haven't necessarily had without Odell Beckham on this team this year. And that's deep, deep ball ability to go up, attack the ball at its highest point, take it away from a defender. And that, that's an element of his game that I was really impressed by. It shows a certain level of veteran ability that we haven't necessarily seen in our receiving core. And as far as deep threats go, something that Evan Ingram has struggled in terms of ball security and making the catches and, and not taking his eye off of it. This looks like a strength for Darius Slayton and something that I hope he builds on during you know the next the back second half of this year. Yeah, and by build on it, I'm hopeful that him and Jones can connect for more than just those two passes because those two touchdown passes in the second quarter are the only two catches that he had on the day. Um, while I like what I see, I, I want to see more. You know, Daniel Jones was spreading it out. He completed 28 passes. He had 322 yards and he spread it out to Tate Barkley Slayton uh and even uh some of our second and third uh wide receivers like Latimer and, and Fowler so 
you know, I was impressed with kind of how he was spreading it out, you know, and I, I want to talk about silver linings, but I think one of the pivotal turning points for me in the game was the Giants defense is on the field just before the end of the half and they make a great defensive play and they get Detroit fourth and four mm -hmm. at their own 48 with two minutes to go. They're down 14 to 13. Giants are about to get the ball back. And we looked at each other and we said, hey, listen, we get the ball back in the 22-minute drill. We could go into this half up a couple of points. Mm -hmm. If not, we're down one. You know, all things considered with that, you know, lateral fumble into the end zone, you know, we're looking pretty good. And then oh, Mayo running into the kicker, <laughs> five yards, extends the drive for Detroit. They kick a field goal with about 20, 25 seconds left in the half. And instead of the Giants potentially going in up uh, to halftime, they're down four, and it felt so deflating. You know, and, and the thing about it, too, is, well, there's a couple of facets to this. One, and this is just a nitpicky thing. It's just something I hate about the NFL. Like, that wasn't a running into the kicker penalty. Right, like it wasn't. He's down on the ground. He he had engaged the lineman. He's fallen down, and essentially, kicker comes down, and his foot bumps into Mayo's hand, and he falls down. And it's good on the punter. Like, like that's the call that you get. But I, I I always get so irritated by the fact that referees have a lack of ability to discern those kind of things and just be like, no, that, we're not we're not throwing the flag on that. But well, that it's, being, it's one thing if if he's coming down and he's not letting the kicker plant his plant foot, right? But right, even if his body, if his body's underneath him, no matter if he's you know actively trying to tackle him or not or get in the way, that I I get that. That's that that's a totally a penalty, and you have to throw the flag on it. Right, and and instead, like the momentum after after Mayo was engaged, he kind of rolled up close to his legs, and you could see the punter saw him coming relatively close. It looked like he even took a step or two and then kind of fell. Oh, yeah. down to the ground in in shock and horror. And you know, I'm a former soccer player. I know how to milk these calls. And <laughs> clearly, he milked it. And when he got over to the sideline, it, you know, it, it's great when the trainers pull him off to the side and they're like, "Are you okay? Yeah. Is everything okay?" And he literally gave them like a wry smile and was like, "I'm I'm fine. Trust yeah. me, I'm fine. I'm fine, guys. I worked that out exactly." Excuse me, Pat Shermer. It played out exactly as I wanted it to. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, Adam, the reason why that was so debilitating is, like I said, you go down 17-13 instead of potentially having the lead. And right out of halftime, the Lions get the ball. They march on the field. And Stafford throws a nine-yard touchdown to Galladay. So right there, you know, really is where the game kind of got away from us. That four points is such a big thing going into halftime. Like you say, if you're down 14-13, that's, you know, great for, uh, from our standpoint. A field goal, you can take the lead in this game. Once you end up giving up the additional three before halftime, now you are in a position of, okay, if we want to get back in this game, we want to take a lead in this game. It's not a field goal. we got to go down and score a touchdown. And we've been struggling to put up points. So you're already, you know, putting yourself in a little bit of a hole heading into the second half. And then with Detroit getting the ball to start, as you said, they go right down, they score a touchdown, and now you're talking about an 11-point game, and you're already in the third and fourth quarter looking back at the mistakes that were made and how it's impacted your ability to maybe stick to a game plan if Pat Shermer, in fact, has one. Yeah, and give the Giants a little bit of credit. You know, after the Galladay touchdown, they showed a little bit of heart. They had a four-ish uh, minute drive that ended in an Evan Ingram touchdown pass uh, mm -hmm. on third and goal. So, oh, you know, some positives, the team showing some fight and, and I like that, but you know, as we get towards the, the fourth quarter, I was, I was very frustrated. I think the, the first thing I can point to is, you know, maybe something smaller that, that you and I noticed, but uh, the Giants got pushed back and they had uh third and 26 
uh, just in, you know, on their side of the of midfield. And yep. they made, made a great play to get it down to fourth and six. And uh, it was kind of a, a, the right call by Shermer to go for it that late in the game, uh, plus side of the field. Right you know, call to go for it. But, but the right play call. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and I talked to a couple of different Giant fans who, at the same time, kind of said the same thing. I don't understand. You know, that, you know, you can see the formation. They're bringing heavy pressure. You know, the yeah. Lions are are bringing the house, saying, "Good luck getting this out." The Giants looked to me like they only had three players running routes because um, they kept everyone in in pass protection. But two of the routes were go routes, vertical routes deep down the field. You know, when you do that, not to mention, not a single one of them was across the middle. So really, you know, kudos to the Lions for making the Giants very one-dimensional in the play. The only place they could go to was Golden Tate, and obviously the pass was broken up. It might have even been a little bit short if he would have caught it anyway. It's a disastrous play call, in my opinion. Same thing, like, I talked to my one of my buddies who's a Giants fan, and it just seems like it's one of those things where it feels so obvious, how could you not be utilizing the space over the middle? You end up running, I believe it's Slayton, and then Evan Ingram end up running go routes, basically, and then you have Golden Tate go to the outside. But how you don't have either Ingram go over the middle or even have Golden Tate run the slant route across the middle so we can try to get some separation and get him, get him the six yards that you need, a play that, relatively speaking, by today's NFL standards, is almost a lock to accomplish. You know, these are the little chunk plays that teams go to consistently throughout the game just to make sure you get into second and third and reasonable down situations. The third and 26 play is a pass, a dump off pass to Wayne Gallman. He makes, does a lot of effort work to get that down to a fourth and six. And that's probably more of what you wanted to see last week on the third down, instead of doing a draw play to Barkley. But an interesting stat that I picked up after this game concluded was the Giants actually average 5.9 yards on first down. So they're averaging almost six yards on first down, which means that their second down is so atrocious that they end up getting into situations of third and long consistently. I think that just is a microcosm of a macro problem. Every time the Giants do something really good, and we talked about this before, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. And, and, and you're right on the money. And I think it's another kind of bullet point to, to your point about how we're doing all these right things early is even after that fourth and sixth play, uh, you know, the Giants defense comes up and makes a play. And, you know, Bethea ends up getting a fumble recovery and, and strips Galladay in Detroit Lion territory with about mm-hmm. six minutes to go. And you know what? We're down two scores. There's six minutes to go. I kind of gave a little bit of a fist pump on the couch saying, we're back in this thing. If we can score relatively quickly, we've got a couple timeouts. We have a chance. And I think the, the play that got me the most frustrated was the third and 11 at mm-hmm. the Detroit 14. Um, do you know where I'm going with this, Adam? Obviously, it's the Daniel Jones looking for Darius Slayton on a, a fade route going towards the right corner of the end zone. Yes. And every single replay that you see, he is getting mauled by the defender. Defender's pulling on him as he comes out of his route. He, the defender times it way too early, gets contact to the body. Mm-hmm. And before the, before the ball even reaches Slayton, he's got his arm slapping down on Slayton's wrist. To me, it's a clear pass interference. And 
Pat Shermer has shown that he has no problem challenging pass interference penalties. Now, mind you, this is at third and 11 on the 14. If there was ever a pivotal moment where we need a challenge, you have to try it. It can't hurt you too bad if you throw the challenge flag and they don't rule in your favor. It felt like this was it. It, this is the most obvious, I guess, outside of the uh, Golden Tate and the Patriots game pass interference penalty that we didn't that, that we didn't get the reverse on. Outside of that one, this is about as all, obvious as a pass interference as you could have. And again, regardless of the circumstance, I think Shermer, ha- to your point, has to throw the flag, has to at least bring attention to what's going on here because then after the game, there, 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 you don't have anywhere to go from there, right? Either you think it was pass interference and you make every case that you that you deserve it. Or you say that you don't think it was. Well, Adam, the, the thing that I found ironic that I was chuckling about was after they picked up the flag on fourth down, uh, two, a minute and a half afterwards, I cut, cut to commercial, they come back, and you have Pat Shermer arguing with the referees after that fourth down play. Well, that and was, yeah, that was another big problem for me. Because <laughs> you're, you're arguing the lesser of the two because the fourth down play, as you and I said as well, all it looked like to me was like Darius Slayton confusion, didn't get his head around quick enough. Ford looked confused too, and they were just kind of standing there together. Right. And, and the, the ironic piece of it was it's past both those plays. They've gone to commercial break. Now is the time where he's <laughs> getting in the face of, of the referees and arguing and pining for a call. On third down, he should have been so livid that, that he was almost fainting on the sideline trying to force them to make a call. And I have a question for you. And I, I would like to think that this would not creep in the mind of a head coach, but Pat Shermer is 0-5 so far in challenges this year. He was beat up and destroyed for the other pass interference mm-hmm. challenges that he's kind of thrown the flag on before. Do you think in the back of his mind, in any percentage or any small amount, that he had thought about the fact that he hasn't won one of these and it's not worth it for him? Yeah. Of course. And I, you know, I 100% think it's there. I, I'm not saying it's 100% on his mind, but there, of, of course there's a, there's a percentage of that because it's the same reason why on fourth down plays, not just Pat Shermer, coaches around the league, why every indication of analytics tells you you should go for it on a fourth and four, or fourth and three, depending on your field position, whatever the case may be, but they don't. And it's because on the back end, you don't want to be standing at the podium in a post-game press conference trying to explain why you didn't get the fourth down conversion and ended up costing you three or seven points on the, you know, going the other way. It is about perception and about maintaining your credibility and not getting beaten up too much. You know, at this stage of the season and at this stage of Pat Shermer's tenure as head coach for the, for the New York football giants, you know, he's right on the edge right now. Every decision that he makes is being scrutinized. Every choice that he makes is being scrutinized. And I could certainly see it being because at that point in the game, the Giants had already used their first timeout. Uh, as the play clock was winding down offensively, they called the timeout to kind of get themselves set. So if you go for the challenge there and you don't get it, you're going to lose another timeout. And big, you know, big picture wise, somebody upstairs, you got to remember too, Pat Schirmer has people upstairs communicating with him. So I, I know we have been harping on him a little bit because he is the head coach, but other people have eyes on this and they're helping him make this decision as well. They're letting him know what they see. If they hedged their bets there a little bit possibly because, guess what, if we think we can get back in this game at some point, we're, we may end up needing two timeouts, not one. If we risk it and we don't get it, then we only have one timeout. You know, that to me is playing scared, playing scared football. 
And, you know, when you're a two and five going to be a two and six team, maybe that kind of adds up that you're a little bit gun shy. When in my mind, though, it's almost reasons why you should be more bold and bullish in everything that you do. There's three minutes and 39 seconds when the third and 11 play happens. You're down two scores. You're down two touchdowns. Yep. If you don't make it there, you can do the math. Even with two timeouts, with three minutes and 39 seconds, even if you score, what is the best case scenario? The best case scenario is you're still having to, to attempt an onside kick, right? And we were kind of breaking down the numbers. I think uh, this year it's been like 8% of yep. all onside kicks have, have been successful. And so like that 8%, right? Then you got to think about if we were to get an onside kick, what is the percentage that we would go down and score a touchdown with mm-hmm. no timeouts with maybe 30 seconds left on the clock? That number gets lower and lower. So are you telling me, that that challenge like doesn't have at least an 8% chance of, of being able to be overturned at that moment. That's, that's where, you know, I, and I don't want to harp on this too long because we, we, we've been beaten flogging this one to death, but I just feel like that was really this the signal of the end of the game. I know the giants came down and Barkley scored a, a, a pass from Daniel Jones to kind of put a bow on it, but I don't know. It just feels like that's the type of risk you got to take. You're a losing team. You're going down with the ship on this one with three minutes to go if you don't make the move, and they didn't, and ultimately they did lose. If Darius Slayton is ready to anticipate that there's going to be a lot of pressure, so Jones is going to have to get rid of the ball quickly, he maybe gets his head around sooner, maybe he makes the catch, and it kind of all goes by the wayside. What I will say is interesting from a play-calling standpoint is that you connected with Evan Ingram and you connected with uh, Saquon Barkley on similar routes, like similar play calling for those touchdowns, if I'm not mistaken, I, I find it interesting that, you know, you had, you had said you thought maybe they would try to run the ball when they ended up uh, passing it to Barkley for the touchdown, when it would have made sense too. It was two things. One, at third and 11, if you think you're maybe going to go for it, you can open up the playbook for anything that you want. I don't think running it is the answer there. But I found it weird that you didn't go back to the well on formations and play calling that had already proven to be effective twice earlier in the game for touchdowns. Yeah, and and you know what, Adam? I think what this boils down to is the Giants are two and six. That felt like really the the end of optimism for the Giants. They've squandered games that were winnable games against the Cardinals and the Lions. I you can sense the frustration that I have. I'm grasping at straws. I'm angry about that one play, but really you know, the, the Giants have so many areas that they need to improve. You know, now at two and six with a Monday night showdown against the Cowboys on the horizon, you know, things are, are not looking great. And I think we're, we're starting to think about next year and how we want to play out the remainder of the season. And of course, the upcoming trade deadline tomorrow. Certainly. Uh, like you said, I think we can go ahead and tie a bow on the recap portion of, of this particular podcast. And as you just mentioned, turn our attention to some of the possible moves the Giants might make and a move that they've already made. So it, it just came out today. We are, uh, of course, recording on the eve of the trade deadline that'll come uh, Tuesday at 4 p.m. Earlier today, news comes out that uh, actually an unprecedented thing occurred. The Giants and Jets engaged in a trade. And we find ourselves bringing over Leonard Williams from the New York Jets. Uh, in return, the Jets received a third-round pick and a conditional fifth-round pick that can become a fourth should the Giants uh, extend Williams on a contract following this season. 
initial takeaways on the on the Leonard William trade. I have some I have some pretty specific things that I'd like to get into regarding this player. Well, it's it's an interesting trade for both teams. I think it makes more sense for the Jets on its face value. You know, Leonard Williams is in the last year of his contract. They didn't necessarily think that he was the long-term solution. Uh, and they wanted to get some kind of capital for him before he walked in free agency. So on their side, getting a third conditional fifth that can move to a fourth if the Giants uh, sign uh, Leonard Williams long-term seems like a pretty good haul. That's a, that's a solid uh, return on, on, a, on a rental-type player. On, on the Giants' side, initially I was frustrated trying to understand more about why they would do this. And as you start peeling back the onion a little bit, I feel more comfortable with the move. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of two things for me. One is uh, if the Giants decide not to sign Leonard Williams and they move on from him after this kind of trial, um, then the Giants are looking at getting potentially a third-round compensatory pick back for Leonard Williams. So really, you can kind of look at it as a fifth-round pick would be kind of the eight-game trial to see if you want to sign a guy to be one of your franchise cornerstones uh, on the defensive line. So that's kind of the the first thing. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. No, no, and and that's a great component of it. When I was – you and I talked a little bit before we recorded. I also was talking with some other Giants fans, and and I was examining the piece of it a little bit from the standpoint of a a guy like Tomlinson, who is a Jerry Reese selection, has had a pretty good season for the Giants, but may not be in the Giants' future plans. So I also looked at it from the standpoint of if you identify Leonard Williams, who just is the quick caveat, this has been a little bit of an offseason for him in a new defensive system. But prior to that, he is a guy who registered 43 tackles for a loss amongst interior defenders since 2016, which was third in the NFL. And he also has 63 quarterback hits and 102 quarterback hurries in his first four seasons. So this is a productive player. Don't, I don't want people to get, you know, Giants fans to get confused about what he is just because he's having an off year in a new system on the, on the Jets. He's also only 25 years old. So you're getting, this is a young player. Should you choose to resign him? It's, kind of to your point, my thought was you bring him in and if you end up shifting away Tomlinson possibly in a trade before the deadline or even in the offseason, if you can get back a third-round pick or something in that range, it almost becomes a bit of a wash. So I, I think the same way you're talking about it, if you end up not signing him and you get tagged for a third-round compensatory tick, uh, pick when he goes somewhere else, giving up a fifth-round pick is not a lot to get an eight-game you know, sample size of this guy, see how he looks with other components that you maybe think are building blocks, like a Marcus Golden, Dexter Lawrence, obviously, and see if he can fit within this. In over eight games, if you don't think so, let him walk, pick up the compensatory. No big deal. I, I, that's why I think it's a real – to me, it feels like it's a win-win for both sides. And anytime that I hear Mike Francesa on the radio ranting and raving what a disaster it was for the Giants, I almost automatically assume <laughs> it's a pretty good thing. Yeah, and and I think, um, you know, the more I thought about it too, yeah, 25-year-old, you know, Adam, they also have the opportunity and option to franchise Leonard Williams if they wanted to, where Mm -hmm. they see a lot from him, but they're not sure if they want to give him that, you know, the $100 million contract for for a defensive lineman. You know, it looks like the franchise tag would be about $16 million uh, for his position next year. And with, you know, uh, 
projections of Eli Manning's cap hit kind of coming off and 23-ish million, I think, Mm -hmm. is what's coming off. You you can absorb that pretty quickly, still have other cap space to spend. So I I like it. It, You know, for for Dave Gettleman, he's kind of quadrupling down on what he's always said that he likes in terms of his hog mollies. You know, Leonard Williams is a quintessential guy that needs to be doubled because he is great against the run. He stuffs the run. He's uh, only had two sacks in the last 12 months, which is not a great statistic. But um, any Jet fan before the trade would have told you, yeah, he's seeing double teams all the time. He's soaking up a lot of, of, of extra bodies. You know, after he gets shipped out, uh, I have a couple Jet fans that say, good luck. He's going to underperform, underwhelm. He's been injured. You know, all of a sudden they air all the dirty laundry out the second that he no longer is on the team. But I'm excited to have Leonard on board. A hundred percent. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. I think that he, he brings in a, a little bit of a different style. Remember, a lot of redundancies on this defensive line between Tomlinson, Lawrence, and B.J. Hill. Very similar players. Not that, uh, you know, Williams isn't going to be a run stuffer first, but I do think he brings a different level of, level of athleticism that's going to allow us to hopefully do some more creative things along that front, and he plugs in very well to, to Betcher's system. Beyond that, just to touch on it because we, pro- we won't come back again until later in the week to preview the Monday night matchup with the Dallas Cowboys. Ahead of the trade deadline tomorrow, you know, there are other players. Janoris Jenkins is the, is the big obvious name that most Giants fans think could be moved on from. You know, interestingly enough, he, he's still a guy that you could see moved in the offseason. You know, I don't think that Gettleman and the Giants necessarily – want to just cut you know cut bait and, and move on from these players not dissimilar to last year with Landon Collins everyone said oh you got to trade him get what you can well they were only looking to get into a fourth round pick for him during the year last year you let him walk in free agency you get the compensatory pick so I do think I, I assume Jenkins moves uh, Ogletree now is another name that's come up as being someone that possibly the Giants are certainly shopping him but whether or not there'd be anyone interested uh, there's a limitation there and then even Nate Soldier is being mentioned in this same context. But again, is there a market for him? And we brought it up before, the concern of just making sure you have someone's going to replace him. But it sounds like the Giants will be willing to listen to something, even around a Nate Soldier at this point. And I think the Williams trade uh, also signals, you know, they, as you said, that we do have a lot of similar players on the line um, in, in young athletic players. You have, you know, we drafted Dexter Lawrence. We've got Hill. Um, you know, we have Dalvin Tomlinson. I wouldn't be surprised if the Giants look and see what's available for Dalvin Tomlinson. Mm-hmm. Just, just knowing that if they basically looked at Dalvin Tomlinson and Leonard Williams and said, we aren't ready to commit to Dalvin long-term, but a guy like Leonard Williams is oozing with potential. We've seen enough where we will. If they can unload him for a third-round pick or you know something in that range, then you basically have swapped those two and you lose a fifth-rounder for it. And if you, if you really believe in a guy that you're going to give $100 million to, that seems like a, a pretty smart decision. So right now, I think there's a, there's a couple of hours, you know, less than – what, 18 hours left before the trade Mm -hmm. deadline. Um, I will expect the Giants to make a couple of more moves. And I think if they do, it's going to make the Williams trade look even better. And that's, I think that is maybe the, the, the cap off to the Williams move. I I do think that it comes in conjunction with something else. It just doesn't, 
to me, it probably wouldn't make sense if they were to not make any other moves, especially along the defensive line. Again, you'll have flexibility in the offseason. There, there will be opportunities to move Tomlinson. He's still under contract for next year as well. So a team can have interest with him heading into the draft. You can see what you do in free agency. But my anticipation is this was going to be at least multiple moves. And I assume with a player coming in, you, you want to see, in my opinion, at least two guys going out for the Giants. Um, a, a, any other thoughts as far, as far as the trade deadline goes? Any other players that, you, that you'd like to see moved? I think we, we've talked about the players that we expect to be on the trade block or most likely. You know, on, on the Jenkins side of things, yes, he is one of our starting cornerbacks, but we did spend a pick on Valentine. We do have Beal, who is back after – um, some injuries and some issues. Uh, and I think, you know, that's one of those areas where if we're looking to build and, and start looking towards next year, you know, flipping Jenkins for, you know, there's been rumors anywhere from a third round pick to a fifth round pick. Right. If we can get something for him, let some of the younger players develop. If we do feel like the playoffs are out of reach, I don't know. I think developing some of our young talents, seeing where Leonard Williams is right now in terms of a, a long-term commitment to him, if we're going to make this move, let's, let's do it the right way and let's really start rebuilding. You know, and, and that's, a big, that's a big component of it too, I will say, that moving on from Jenkins is as much about getting value for a player that, you know, you'd like to move on from his contract. I actually have really, I, I've really enjoyed Jenkins' time as a giant. It's not a knock on him. I, I'd be happy if he gets to a contender where he has a chance to compete you know, for a Super Bowl. And certainly the Kansas City Chiefs are one of the prominent teams that come to mind that may be a suitor for his, for his services. It, it is as much about moving on from that and getting assets back for next year as it is about the next eight games back half of this year. It's about evaluating talent and knowing is Ballantyne, who should be coming out of concussion protocol, Sam Beal, back healthy. You, know, you want to know what these players are because then going into free agency in the draft, you know, do we need to go to free agency to get a lockdown corner? Do we need to think about another one in the draft potentially? You just want to get through these guys and know what you have, and that's what I think the organization is going to be looking to do. You bring in some guys, whether it's through trade or Dion Buchanan, who you brought in. It's about giving guys opportunities, a chance to showcase what their skill set is within our system, and then having a much more concrete sense of what you need to accomplish in the offseason and the draft to hopefully – turn the page on what has been a rough handful of years and start being competitive week in and week out. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of dovetails nicely into, you know, this week's later uh, prediction that we're going to go into. I think before we even get into the Dallas Cowboys matchup, I think what we'll want to do is recap what's happened in the 72 hours that we left uh, the listeners just to make sure we can keep them updated on where we think all the trades kind of settled the giants what the expectations are for the team for the rest of the year. And if it points to anything specific about the roster, the players, or uh, as you said before, maybe some of the Jerry Reese holdovers that Gettleman's looking to purge from the team. Certainly when you come down to the trade deadline and you start to get a little bit of that NBA kind of buzz around, around the, the trade season for the NFL, we're, we're going to maybe get a little bit long winded, but luckily we're going to bring this one to you early in the week so you can digest it before we come back and give you another tight one as we look ahead to the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, you know, as we always say, follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at One Giant Podcast. Some interesting and exciting news that we'll get into later in the week, but a pretty big and exciting announcement for the One Giant Podcast. We're, we're 
making some moves. We're moving up in the world, in the podcast world. So I'm going to be excited to kind of dive into a little bit more, but we'll leave it there for now. Anything you want to, you want to leave the fans with before we wrap this one up? No, excited to see how the deadline uh, ends up. Big shout out to Leonard Williams. Welcome to the family. Excited to see what's going to happen over their next eight games, but uh, we'll chat with everyone in the next couple days. And that'll do it. Wrapping up the week eight, matchup with the Detroit Lions. We'll see you all later in the week looking ahead to a divisional matchup with the Dallas Cowboys. And as always, this has been One Giant Podcast. Podcast.